Last Sunday we began to look at Jesus' encounter with a Samaritan woman at Jacob's well near the town of Sychar, which is in Samaria. Jesus came to this well to, to meet this gal so that he could reveal himself to her as Messiah. In verses 10 through 15, Jesus used physical examples about water and these things to teach her spiritual truths, but she did not understand. And then in verses 16 through 18, Jesus revealed things about her personal life, her five failed marriages, uh, the fact that she was at that moment, at that time, living with her boyfriend, etc. So he teaches her, he tries to teach her spiritual truths through physical examples. She doesn't get it. And then he brings up these things about her past and about her present. And he, he did this to, to show three things. First, to show that he is the divine Messiah because God alone is omniscient, which means that he, per, he possesses all knowledge. Obviously, Jesus knew things about her life and didn't know her. So he had this knowledge before he even met her. So that shows that he has omniscience, all knowledge. It shows that he is the Messiah. It shows that he is God. Second, to show that she herself seeks after meaning and satisfaction in, in people and in stuff rather than in God, which is typically our default mode as fallen sinners. We go after significance and meaning and these sorts of things in, in everything and in everyone other than God when in fact God alone is the only one who can bring meaning and satisfaction into our lives. So he exposed that about her, his deity, and then that. And then thirdly, to show that she is a sinner who needs to accept Jesus' offer of the living water, which is his saving and satisfying grace. So that's why he went there to meet with her. That's why he talked about the things that he talked about with her, that's why they're engaged in this conversation. This morning, we're going to focus on the second half of their conversation. So all of that took place in the first half. Now we're going to look at the second half of their conversation where Jesus deals with her religion. He deals with her worship. Obviously, she was a Samaritan and she wasn't Jewish and she had a particular religion in these things and a way of worshiping. And so Jesus now begins to address uh, those things about her. We're going to look at four D's this morning. We're going to look at the danger, the disapproval, the dispensation, and the declaration. So that's how I've broken up this text. Let's pray before we get to work. Father, we humbly acknowledge your presence and thank you for getting us this far this morning and helping to prepare our hearts through music and prayer and giving our tithes and offerings in these things. Lord, we pray that for this particular moment that, that you would help us to be focused in, and to listen carefully, but not just to listen and be focused, but to, to really hear the word and to be impacted by it. So, so we ask that you send the Holy Spirit, that he would come in power and work out the gospel in our own hearts, work out these truths in our own hearts and Maybe for some of us, that, uh, that means that we come to know Jesus for the first time in a saving way. And maybe for others here, that we just 
are sanctified and, and conformed a little bit more uh, to the image of Jesus, which is what our salvation is all about. So uh, we just uh, want to humbly acknowledge your presence and give ourselves over to you during this time, and we pray that you would be glorified during this time. Teach us about true religion and teach us about true worship this morning, because that's precisely what you set out to do with this gal, and the, uh, the impact that Jesus had on her at that time was just incredible, and so we pray for that same impact here today through the Holy Spirit. Uh, we give you our, our time and focus now, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So let's begin with number one. The danger, we, we're looking at that in verses 19 through 20, 19 through 20. This is the woman responding to the things that Jesus has said to her so far. She says, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. And she says, our fathers worshiped on this mountain. She's actually pointing to Mount Gerizim. It's right, they're basically at the foot of it, so she's, it's like if you were standing at the base of Mount Diablo and you're pointing up to the top of it, I'm sure Gerizim was a little bigger, but she literally points to this mountain, and she says that uh, our fathers worship there, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. So this is her response to Jesus after he reveals these incredibly personal things about her life, the failed marriages and and living with her boyfriend and these things. She says, "I, I think you're a prophet. I perceive that you are a prophet. And it is his knowledge of her past and present that causes her to believe this. This tells us that Jesus didn't spend much time getting to know her before he actually brought out these things. He, he, he knew about her because he is God. He knew about her because he has omniscience, all knowledge. And, and she immediately realizes, well, he's telling me things about my life that only me and the, the townspeople that I live around know. He, he must be a prophet. He must have supernatural rel, rel, uh, revelation power or something of that nature. So I think you're a prophet. You've told me things about my life. That's what she's saying to him. Hmm, you must be a prophet. And this is interesting because folks like her, Samaritans, did not accept the authority of all of the prophets that came after Moses. And most of us have heard of Moses. So Samaritans had a really strange religion that had some Judaism in it, but they canceled out the rest of it. So they didn't listen to or believe any of the prophets after Moses. And there were a ton of prophets that came after Moses. Hey. This is crazy that she acknowledges him this way. Like, wait a minute, you must be a prophet. So she's going beyond Moses. I think in her mind she's thinking, if, if Jesus is a prophet, he must be the prophet with a capital P, uh, which we see in Deuteronomy 18.15. This is a prophet that the Samaritans would have acknowledged. It wasn't a typical prophet, it was kind of the... The biggest prophet of them all, if you want to put it that way. In that particular passage, it says, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like Moses from among you, from your brothers. And the exhortation then, the encouragement is, it is to him that you shall listen. So way, way before Jesus ever came, There was a, uh, God had spoken through Moses to the Israelites. There's going to be a a special, unique prophet that's going to come. 
He's the prophet of all prophets, the biggest prophet. And I think that in her mind she's thinking maybe Jesus is that prophet, the one who will be like Moses who will come. Samaritans and Jews both affirmed and believed in this particular prophet, the one like Moses. They also both believe that this prophet is none other than the Messiah. So the prophet with a capital P that we see in Deuteronomy and that's referenced in the New Testament in certain places is a capital P prophet, the prophet of all prophets. Who is he actually? He is the Messiah. That is the one that God will raise up who will lead the Israelites in a similar way to Moses, but in such greater fashion. So really what she's doing here by referring to Jesus as a prophet and really the prophet, she was in a sense asking if he is the one from Deuteronomy, the promised Messiah. You think about it, if somebody can stand before you and and tell you things about your life that maybe only you know or only a handful of people know or the entire city of Keys which is bizarre because that's what happened with her in Sychar. Everyone knew who she was. Oh, she's the one that's been married all these times and now is shacked up with her boyfriend. Well, you live with your boyfriend. Yeah, but that's me. This is her, you know, and the hypocrisy. You just... If you receive information about yourself from somebody that you do not know, you're going to be wondering what in the heck is going on. How does this person know me? And so that's what's playing out here. He knows about her life, her past, her present, and, and she says, "You basically, are you the one that, the capital P prophet that's to come, the Messiah? That's what she's implying here. There is a, because I've entitled this little section, The Danger, there is a, a particular kind of danger represented here in, in, in verse 20. You know, where she said, our fathers worship on this mountain, but you say in Jerusalem. There's a, there is a, a danger represented here in her words, in her statement. After exposing her sin, right? Because she had all the failed marriages and she was pursuing satisfaction in someone other than God, which is basically sin. She's not worshiping God. She's worshiping herself and everyone else. After exposing her sin, she basically wants to know which religion will take care of her problem. That's pretty much what she's asking. Well, well, we worship on this mountain, and people like you say that we're supposed to do it over here. Where do I go to get the help I need? Where do I go? Is it the religion that I believe in, the religion of the Samaritans, which is centered on Mount Gerizim? Will that take care of my, my problem that you've just showed me? Or will the religion of the Jews, people like you, which is centered at the temple in Jerusalem, will that do the trick? What do I do? And Samaritans and Jews had been hotly debating the subject of true religion and the true place of worship for many, many centuries. So this was a debate that had been going on and on and on, like, are we supposed to do it here? Are we supposed to do it here? And, and, and right at this particular moment, Jews and Samaritans were still engaged in this hot debate. Samaritans, of course, argued that Samaritan religion is true religion. And, and Mount Gerizim, that, you know, that little Mount Diablo over there, that is the true place of worship. That's where we go when we have sin and where we, we, we want to take care of that and where we want to worship God. That's what they preached. And then, of course, Jews argued that Judaism is 
true religion in the temple in Jerusalem is the true place of worship. And that's where you must go if you want to really worship God and, and deal with your life and those kinds of things. Receive his blessings. And of course, since Jesus is a Jewish prophet, she assumes that he will side with the Jews in this debate. In a way, what she's doing is she's trying to bait Jesus trying to get him to engage in a conversation and debate about the right place and right religion. And I love Jesus so much. He's just, he does the opposite of what I do in every scenario. Because I take the bait, fish on, and then argue for two days, make a complete fool of myself, lose a friend, and he just totally, it's like, she says it and he's like, And then he proceeds to talk to her about some important things. He just doesn't take the bait. But I think in her heart, she's trying to figure out where do I go and what do I do? And I also believe that in the Samaritan woman's mind, the subject was already settled. It was already a settled thing. She's curious, inquisitive, wants to know, but she's also trying to bait him and get him to engage in an age-old discussion. But but the the matter is already settled. If you ever talk to someone who belongs to a religion or whatever, I mean, they they seem pretty settled in it, you know? It's like, well, this is what I do, and that's okay for you. And so the, the matter is settled in her mind. There's a sincerity there, but she already believed that Samaritan religion, the religion of her fathers, is the answer to her problem. You're telling me all these past marriages and these things. I'm a sinner because of these things. That's fine. I, I acknowledge that. I agree with that. But man, I need to do the Samaritan thing. That's what she's thinking. You know, if she wants absolution, that would be forgiveness. She can just do what she's always done. She can ascend the Mount, you know, Mount Gerizim. And I don't mean with, you know, a pick and climbing gear. She can go up the, the trail that takes her up there. And she can go to the temple ruins that are up there at the top of the mountain. And, and she can offer sacrifices to her God. That's what she would typically do, and that's what she's intending to do. Now, the danger lies in her mode of thinking, in her belief. She thinks that if she adheres to a particular religion, if she honors its deities or deity, that's gods or God, if she follows its precepts, you know, the rules and the things that she's supposed to do in accordance with the religion, And if she goes to a designated place of worship to perform a ritual or six, if she does all of that, she will be forgiven and go to heaven or whatever. And her religion was literally called Samaritanism. Today's major religions such as Islam or Buddhism or Hinduism basically teach teach the same thing. They teach the same thing. You do X, Y, and Z, and and you get the forgiveness, and you go to heaven, and and all this stuff, and you're good to go. All religions, including Samaritanism, promote what I call dual justification, which basically says that, that belief or faith plus good works make people righteous before God and gain them access to heaven. This is literally all religions teach this. You must believe in a particular deity, the deity we tell you to believe, or the deities, plural, and so it's a faith thing, and you must do all these steps. You must follow all these rituals. You must go here and do this and do that and so on and so forth. 
But you see, biblical Christianity teaches single justification. It's the complete opposite of all the other religions. It teaches that sinners are justified by God through faith alone. Romans 5.1 When a person believes in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, they, they become clothed in Jesus' righteousness the righteousness he earned through perfect obedience to God's law during his life on earth. Have you ever pondered that, that Jesus literally lived a perfect life of obedience? That he obeyed all of God's laws perfectly. He did the impossible. He did what humanity has been trying to do since the fall and has never been able to pull off. Jesus alone did that, and through that he earned the righteousness that we need to enter heaven, to even be restored to God, to have a relationship with God. When God looks on the person of faith, the one who believes in Jesus Christ, He sees their faith, He sees the belief, He, he sees the righteousness of Christ, and He justifies or declares that person righteous once and for all. Heaven becomes their future destination, and we certainly don't want to narrow it down just to that. That's wonderful, but you receive an abundant life now, a life that's quite extraordinary and different from what you were living. God does not, does not look on us, see our faith, analyze our behavior, and then justify us. If this were the case, our justification would be intermittent, because our obedience is intermittent, isn't it? Do any of us obey God perfectly? If, if, if anyone were to believe that they do, then they're doing what it says in 1 John. They're lying to themselves. They're denying the fact that they're a sinner and they continue to sin. So think about it. Does God play this game with us where he's watching us? Justified. Oh, he just used a bad word. Not justified. He repented. Justified. Oh my goodness, he looked at that person with lust, not justified. I don't know why I brought up that example. That makes me look really creepy. It's like, Holy Spirit, help me. You would, you would literally be bouncing back and forth between I'm okay with God and I'm not okay with God. I'm okay with... Heaven forbid I should die in a mode of not being okay. Right? Because then what? I get like 2,000, 10,000 years in purgatory. Literally. Or I don't go to heaven at all. If justification, being made right with God and being declared righteous before God, if that depends even the slightest bit upon our obedience, how would we ever experience the assurance of salvation and be able to rest in Jesus? If, if, if salvation and justification and all that's packed into that is contingent upon our behavior, how would we ever really know that we're saved and be able to rest in Jesus? You will, you will never, you will live your life in a constant struggle to obey so that you can be righteous. We would become entirely focused on ourselves and, and completely racked at all times with anxiety about our future as we go back and forth with sin. Plus, the, the Bible just absolutely and clearly teaches that it is impossible 
for sinners like us to acquire righteousness for justification apart from faith in Christ. That's just a biblical reality. I like what Mark Dever said. He said, trying to establish one's own righteousness before a holy God is as a Kleenex before the sun. (laughs) Guys, bottom line, we're made, we're justified by faith alone. There's, There's no... There's no human play in that. There's no works or, or deeds or, or behavior that's tied to it because if that's the case, we're, we're in a lot of trouble. The Bible just teaches the opposite. But I would say this, it is important to realize that Christianity absolutely promotes works for salvation. Wait a minute, Pastor Phil, you're contradicting everything you just said. It totally, totally promotes works, not our works, the works of Christ. There's a huge difference between what he did and what we attempt to do. He did things perfectly, earned for us the righteousness that we need. And by faith, we receive it. Now, the Samaritan woman was in in mortal danger here because she belonged to a religious system that promoted dual justification which basically has to do with earning your way with God. Yeah, you got to believe and affirm the deity, but you got to do a lot of things for him to make him happy so you can be accepted. That's her religion in a nutshell, and guess what? That's all religion. That's all religion. And unfortunately, there's about 10, I don't know how many denominations there are, 33,000 Christian denominations. I would say probably 90% of them fall into that category. That they're a weird blend of belief and works. And the Bible just denounces all of that and says, no, that's not the way. But there's another danger represented here, not just in in the dual justification. There's another danger here where, where we treat Christianity like a set of rituals. I call it checkbox Christianity. Checkbox Christianity. There are people in the church that do this. I've met tons of them, right? I've met them, and I, and I, I totally fight the temptation to do this. They go through all the motions, and they check the invisible boxes in their mind. I, I go to church, check. I give an offering, check. I serve in the band, check. I go to women's Bible study, check. I'll go to the men's Bible study when Phil launches one, check. I take, people are like, hurry. I take, com- yeah, I take communion, check. I, I, I got baptized, check. I listen to a sermon, woo, check. I read my Bible, check. I prayed, check. I did this, check. I did that, check. And people think, God loves them and will forgive them because they do all these things. Will all of these things cause God to love me and forgive me and accept me? There's no difference between that and Samaritanism. What would happen? What would happen? What would happen if a person, for whatever reason, ended up on a hospital bed and could not do all these checkbox things anymore? Maybe for a season or any more at all, would God stop loving and forgiving them? According to their logic, absolutely. Well, God would look upon them and say, you're in a bed, you can't do all the things you were doing before, I don't love you and I can't forgive you. There's the logic. 
But you must understand checkbox Christianity is not Christianity. It is false religion. False religion in every form says do and receive. Christianity is completely flipped. It says receive and do. We do the above things, attend church and all that stuff. We do the above things and whatever, not because we want God to love and forgive us, but because God loves and forgives us in Jesus. You understand? Don't get the cart ahead of the horse. It's false religion. Every good deed we do is done in response to God's love, not to get God to respond to us with love. Because of Jesus, God already loves us at the highest level and there is nothing we can do to diminish His love. Romans 8, 38 through 39, neither death nor life, principalities, nothing can separate us from the love of God. And that love is full at all times. It's perfect, it's holy, it's unaffected by all things because God is immutable and unchanging. The knowledge of God's love within us creates a disposition of gratitude, an attitude of gratitude. And we come to church to show our thanks and, and worship the one who loves and saves us. Amen? That's why we come. But you must understand there are folks in the church that think it's reversed. And all the other religions teach the reverse. Do and receive. And with us, we've already received by grace through faith. Jesus Christ and His finished work. And, and now we begin to do. Now we begin to respond as, as new creations, as new people. We've been born again. And now we begin to do things that God wants us to do. Why? Because we love God. Why? Because He first loved us. And I'll tell you, the knowledge of God's love also causes us to fall out of love with sin and into love with truth and righteousness more and more each day. So if you call yourself a believer and you are just crazy about sin, there's something defective with you. I'm not saying you don't sin anymore, but I'm saying when you do it, you don't like it. It upsets you. Now let's look at the second D. So the first one was the danger, the danger of false religion, the danger of treating Christianity like false religion where we have dual justification where we're trying to, well, I believe, and we're trying to earn. Stop trying to earn. It's all about belief. And that's what she was doing. Oh, where, where do I go? What do I do, Jesus? What do I need to do to make things right? Do I go up the mountain? Do I go to Jerusalem? And now we see the disapproval in 21 through 22. Here's Jesus' response to her comment. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me. And woman is not a disrespectful term. It looks like, you know, woman. Now, that's how I would have said it. He didn't say it like that. Woman, he says, woman, believe me. The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. And he says in 22, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. Okay, Jesus just dropped a verbal hydrogen bomb on her forehead. 
He did. He just, he, it's a twofold correction, but it is, it was kind, it was loving because he did this perfectly. I don't. I wish I was more like him. Make me more like him, Holy Spirit. But this is a, a very strategic and poignant correction. First, he tells her that the two places she's concerned about, Mount Gerizim and the temple in Jerusalem, are irrelevant because God is about to switch things up. You're worried about this place, you're worried about this place, stop worrying about those places because they're going to be irrelevant very soon. The time for worshiping God at, at temples made by human hands was drawing to a close. God was about to begin a a new dispensation, a period where His worshipers will worship Him wherever they are. What happened when, when Jesus died on the cross during the ninth hour? The ground shook, the tombs opened, there was a resurrection that took place right there. That fascinates me. It's not the resurrection, but it was one of a couple of them. And what else happened? The curtain at the temple, this huge curtain was supernaturally torn top from top down, wide open, thus revealing the most sacred room, the holiest of holies. What did the tearing of the curtain symbolize? Well, many things, but in particular, it symbolized the departure of God's presence from the temple. It signified, I'm not going to be worshipped here anymore. I'm not going to be worshipped in temples. People are not going to have to come to one of these places to worship me. It did symbolize that. It symbolized the end of the old covenant and the sacrificial system gone. Jesus wiped it out with one one single sacrifice. He is the Lamb of God. That sacrifice brought an end to that whole system. And it also symbolized the beginning of the new covenant. And the new covenant has many features, but the one Jesus points to here is worship. Now he goes into more detail in 23 and 24. We'll wait to get there in a moment. That's the first correction. Those two places, you're concerned about the wrong thing. There's coming a time very soon that God is not going to be worshipped in any kind of place like that. Second part of the correction, in a similar way to Nicodemus, which we totally looked at in chapter 3, Jesus tells her her religion is utterly useless and will not help her. There's the hydrogen bomb on the forehead. He points out how Samaritans do not know or worship the true God and how they do not understand that Messiah and salvation is from the Jews. That's equivalent to saying your religion does nothing for you. And, and, And you remember when Jesus said something similar through a major conversation with Nicodemus, Nicodemus was flabbergasted. You're telling me that the religion that I belong to my whole life and all the things I've done are equal spit? Yeah, that's what I'm telling you. Okay, I'm done with you. You must understand that God created the Jewish people through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? Those are the kind of the founding fathers that he worked out this nation and people through. And he chose the Jews as his people. He, he gave them his word, and, and which is his revelation. He, he gave them his laws and made a covenant with them. He gave them the prophets. He also promised to bring Messiah through their progeny, or more particularly through the kingly line of David. That's kind of the Jewish history in a nutshell. Samaritans, on the other hand, did not have the revelation of God, nor were they people of the covenant. 
They had no concept of any of this stuff. None. And they actually thought they were worshiping God, but their religion was nothing more than a product of their imagination. See, if you leave men alone apart from Christ, they come up with all sorts of religions, all sorts of ways to uh, appease their, their sin and, and, and uh, guilt and shame and, and to make themselves feel good about the future and these things. And, and all, all religion is essentially a, the product of man's imagination. I, I think John Calvin said it so well. He said that the human heart is a factory of idols. It just perpetuates idols over and over they thought, and she sincerely believed, that she was worshiping God, but her religion was nothing more than a Star Trek episode or something like that. It was a strange blend of, of Judaism, astrology, you know. I always think of that Cleo woman that was on TV years ago. Remember her? The, you know, Call me now! You know, she was like from Brooklyn, but she had a, you know, she pretended like she was from Jamaica. And you would call her and tell me my future. I will. Just give me your credit card number and I'll unload it for you. You know, I'm like, I don't like that one. Can I give you a different card? You know, maybe if I, can I get my American Express involved? Her religion was like that, but it had touches of Judaism in it. It was polytheistic, which means it had more than one God. And it could be traced back to the 700s BC when vast numbers of Samaritan Jews were removed from the land and replaced with Babylonians and other foreign peoples and Foreigners all kind of intermarried with the remaining Samaritan Jews, thus forming kind of a hybrid race of people with a new blended religion, which later became known as Samaritanism. So Jesus disapproves of not only her statement, but her belief in, I can just go here and do this, I can do that, I'll be okay. And now we look at the third D, the dispensation, 23 and 24, Jesus continues and he says, but the hour is coming and is now here. And I just want you maybe to underline or circle the word hour. That represents his death. He's referring to his death. He knows it's coming. Do you see that? But the hour is coming. But my death is coming. You could translate it that way. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. And this is, the statement is fantastic. God is spirit. He is invisible. And so to worship Him, we must worship Him, not in an invisible way, but we must acknowledge His invisible presence and worship Him. Now, in theology, a dispensation represents a stage in God's self-revelation and plan of salvation. In the current dispensation, or the dispensation they were in when this transpired under the Old Covenant, the primary place of worship was the temple in Jerusalem. People of faith would come to it to, to offer their sacrifices, to sing their songs, holy, holy, whatever. They would go there to experience the presence of God and worship God. Jesus tells the Samaritan woman that this dispensation is about to end and a new one is about to begin. The hour is upon us. In the new dispensation, God will be worshipped differently than from before. He will be worshipped in spirit and truth. Worshipping in spirit and truth basically means that worship will no longer be confined to a single geographical location like the temple at Jerusalem, 
nor will it be regulated by the temporary provisions of the Old Testament law. With the coming of Christ, the separation between Jew and Gentile was no longer relevant, nor was the centrality of the temple in worship. With the coming of Christ, all of God's children gained equal access to God through Christ. Worship becomes a matter of the heart, not external actions, and directed by truth rather than ceremony. So under the current dispensation, if a person of faith wanted to worship God, he or she had to go to the temple and perform certain rituals in accordance with Mosaic law. Under the dispensation Jesus introduces here, a person of faith can worship God wherever they are as long as they do it in spirit and truth. There's the difference. Now, spirit does not refer to the Holy Spirit, although I think there is no worship that takes place without the Holy Spirit's aid. But it does not refer to Holy Spirit. It refers to our spirit or heart, which is what? The seat of our emotions. The heart or our spirit is really the center of who we are. That's where all of our likes are and and the things that we value. Everything is kind of in the center of who we are. We're a seat of our emotions. That's our spirit. That is represented by our spirit and heart here. Worshiping God in spirit has to do with engaging our hearts or engaging our whole hearts. If there is no real inner passion for God during maybe the worship of when we worship God through songs, if there's no inner passion for God during that kind of worship or really any mode of worship, there's just, we're not worshiping in spirit if we don't have a heart of love. You know, if, we, if we're just singing songs to sing songs and we, we don't love Christ in our hearts and, and this is welling and boiling out of us, and, and then we're not worshiping in spirit. Worshiping in spirit means to worship with the heart, to worship with the heart, to worship with our emotions, to worship with our affections. And there's some church circles where it seems like people are really doing this well, but really I think what they're doing is trying to maybe apply for Ringling Brothers. They're running and jumping all over, and it's just like, oh, Lord, this is frightening. I don't think that's worshiping in spirit. But that's what worshiping in spirit is. It is worship that is coming forth from the heart, that we sing from a heart of love and gratitude. We must also worship in truth. And truth means properly informed. That doesn't mean we better follow all the rules of worship. doesn't mean that. Truth refers to knowledge of the gospel. We must have knowledge of the person and work of Jesus Christ if we are to worship in truth. It is the truth of the gospel, the knowledge of what Christ has done for us, right? He died for us. He, he was buried for us. He rose from the grave for us so that we could be saved and, and, and receive his, you know, his blessings and go to heaven. It's the knowledge of that, the knowledge of what he has done, the knowledge of the gospel, the knowledge that comes right from God's revealed word that impassions and inflames our hearts for worship. If our minds are not properly informed by the gospel, we cannot worship in truth. And that's what I'm wondering what's going on in some of these places where it's a circus. You actually, what are you doing? Are you just doing that because you're super emotional? And I don't know about you, but when I get all ramped up emotionally, I get like high. The adrenaline kicks in and I'm like, whoa, you know, 
I'm not thinking about what Jesus has done. I'm thinking about what I can do next to heighten that experience even more. I'll grab a flag. Or whatever they do. You know? I'll do a backflip. It was the only one I ever did, but I landed it. But now I'm in the hospital. It's about a mind that is saturated with the knowledge of what Christ has accomplished for us that moves to the center of who we are and comes out in love and gratitude and thanks in our worship. That's what Jesus is telling her. She thinks it's about ritual. If I go up to the mountain and do this X, Y, and Z, I'll be good. He's saying that's not what it's about. That's not what it's about. It's not about going here and doing X, Y, and Z. It's about what you understand, and it's about what comes out based on that understanding. This is so important that we know this. Jesus boldly tells the Samaritan woman that both spirit and truth are necessary for God-honoring worship. You cannot have one without the other. Spirit without truth leads to a shallow, overly emotional experience, doesn't it? As soon as the emotion is over, when the fervor cools, so does the worship. Whew, last week was incredible. There's no worship that went on throughout the whole week. You know, they weren't energized and charged for any of that by the truth in their minds. It was just an emotional experience. Oh, I hate the fact that some of these pastors out there are, are packaging that as you were in the presence of God. That's why you felt the way you did, and that's why you did what you did. And then you go back and listen to the sermon and you never even preach the gospel. Huh? Truth without spirit can result, right? The opposite is true too. Truth without spirit can result in a dry, passionless encounter that can easily lead to a form of joyless legalism. You know, those worshipers, and I, I don't know, I don't want to be critical if you're one of them, but there's some people who just, you know, somebody puts their hand up, sinner, you know? There's a difference between flying around with a flag and putting your hand up. Putting your hand up is okay. Going to your knees is okay. Tears is okay. Doing jumping jacks, me taking you to the ER, not okay. <laughs> but you can't, you, you can't have one without the other. And, and, and if, you're, if it's just all about truth and there's no heart, then what's going on there, man? That truth hasn't penetrated your heart and transformed your heart. I'm not saying you, you maybe you have to show a different face when you're worshiping. I'm just saying it's really all on the inside and then begins to come out. So you can't always judge a book by its cover. People look like they're worshiping like crazy. And I'm sitting over there going, wow, they really get it. Maybe they don't. So really it's on the inside, but it will come out, you know. It's okay to smile when we sing. You know, it's okay to lift your hands or whatever, but really it's not about the mechanism. It's about what's going on on the inside of you. And, and you, 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 it can't just be a true thing. It has to be a truth in spirit and vice versa. Right? It, it should be both. I mean, that's what he says. You can't worship God any other way. You've got to have both there. You've got to have a mind filled with the truth and a heart filled with love. And that truth will perpetuate a heart of love. And then that comes out in your singing, it comes out in your living, it comes out in everything. Jesus also said God is seeking, right? I put it in quotes, seeking such people to worship Him. Boy, people have tore this verse up. It does not mean that God is trying to find folks out there in the world who will worship Him in spirit and truth. If I could just find one, 
Like there's people out there, you know, just, at, I, I want to do that and I hope he finds me so I can start to do it. I hope I get discovered. People think that literally God's like, you know, there's got to be some out there. Well, that makes God look like he's not sovereign and doesn't know all things or that he's not all powerful. There are no true worshipers out there in the world waiting to be found and discovered by God. They're not out there. They don't exist. There are only sinners in the world who worship themselves and worship idols. When God looks upon the world, apart from any of his saving grace work, all he sees is a bunch of sinners, wayward sinners, worshiping themselves and worshiping creation. That's what he sees. So the proper interpretation of seeking is drawing. It is creating how do I know this to be true? Because it is tethered to John 6, where Jesus said, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Okay, so actually what God is doing is he is drawing men and women to himself by his grace and by the power of the Holy Spirit. He is causing them by the Spirit, right, to be born again. And he is creating for himself a people who will worship him in spirit and truth. That's the right way to interpret the verse. Not that God's looking out and trying to find us. That's the proper meaning of the word seeking, drawing, and creating. That's a work of grace that God would look upon us at all in our lowly, sinful, wicked condition with a heart of love and regenerate and save us and make us worshipers who worship in spirit and truth. That's awesome, man. That's like the greatest news ever. When Jesus died on the cross, the dispensation, that period of temple worship ended and the dispensation or period of spirit and truth Worship began. It started. And it became turbocharged on the day of Pentecost, right? When the Holy Spirit came upon the church. Because you can't do anything really apart from Him. When that happened, wow, things really took off. And I'll tell you what, we are currently living in this dispensation, this period of time. And I want you just to think for a moment how blessed you are. Because if, if we're under the old system and old dispensation, uh, somehow I've got to get plane tickets a couple, about three or four times a year to fly to Jerusalem so I can go to the temple that doesn't exist to worship God. Because that's right worship back in the old system. I couldn't afford the plane tickets. We can worship God, the people of God can worship God wherever they are as long as we do it with inflamed, impassioned hearts and informed minds. But do not make the mistake of thinking that this is a Sunday-only deal. God's true people worship Him every day when at home, at work, at school, at the gym, at a restaurant, or wherever. And that doesn't mean we're at the gym. All of a sudden you start singing, Holy, Holy, Lord. I, you could do that. But it means that you have a mind that's filled with the gospel and a heart of love for Him. And you're thinking about Him. You're thinking about what He did. And you're saying, I love you. That's just worship. That's worship right there on the inside. Or, or, or pumping the weights for Jesus. I'm going to put up this 400 for you, Lord. Yeah. For me, it was 400 ounces. That's probably more than I could handle. I don't even know what the equivalent is. 
It's, it's doing what we do for the glory of God. We're always, we always should always have a mind filled with the truth of the gospel. We focus and saturate in the word and walk around with hearts of love and gratitude for Jesus Christ, for God, for what he's done. That's a worshipful, worshipful disposition and attitude. That's, that's how we should be, right? Worship isn't a mere act. It is a lifestyle. I love what Jim Elliott said. Do you know who Jim Elliott is? You ever hear the story about those missionaries that flew into Ecuador and landed on the beach and were immediately killed by the Indians there? He was one of them. And he just hit the nail on the head with this statement. He said, Christianity is more than a padded pew or dim cathedral. It is a real, living, daily experience which goes on from grace to grace. Boy, he nailed it, didn't he? He nailed it. Now let's look at our last D, the declaration. The declaration, 25 and 26. This is the woman responding to Jesus' teaching on true religion or true worship, really. She said to him, I know, I know that Messiah is coming. Parenthetical, he is called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus, look at, the, look at the declaration. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Wow. The Samaritan woman had enough Judaism in her blended religion to know that Messiah is coming. In fact, the Samaritans were holding out for Messiah. They might have had a twisted view of him or something. I don't know, a hybrid view. But they were like the Jews in that they knew there was a Savior of the world coming. And they, were, they had their hope in that, in him. So they got that. So she had that. She says, well, man, when he comes, he's going to tell us all these things. She, she actually tells Jesus when he comes, he will make known to her people the truth about worship, the truth about everything else. And that's the part of Jesus being the light that he illuminates the world. And I think her response is more of a question than a statement. She seems to be probing to see if Jesus is the actual Messiah, he who is called the Christ. After Jesus revealed personal information about her life, she sensed that he is, a, he is that special prophet whom Moses wrote about. That's what she thought. He must be the prophet. After Jesus articulated the subject of true worship with, with such clarity, with such wisdom, with such authority, she senses that he is indeed the promised Messiah. Now it's starting to click for her, finally, in the conversation. And Jesus affirms her suspicion and brings an end to the mystery. He boldly declares, I who speak to you am he. This was his way of saying, I am the Messiah. And I'll tell you, this is, this is mind-blowing for me, looking at this and reading this. It is absolutely life-changingly incredible that Jesus revealed his true identity to this woman. Normally, he avoided such declarations. He really did. Toward the end of his ministry, he really began to reveal who he is, but through most of it, he just did not tell people 
He did not reveal his full identity. He did to his disciples, but he didn't go much farther than that. Now, he did show that he's Messiah through his miracles and all that, but he just did not. He avoided such declarations, especially before his own people, the Jews, because they had crass political and militaristic views of Messiah. They wanted him to go beat up Rome and all this weird stuff, so he just avoided that topic with people. But here, Jesus absolutely let the cat out of the bag and reveals his messianic identity to a virtual nobody, a woman who was living with her boyfriend. You know, one of the reasons why the ultra-religious Pharisees rejected Jesus is because Jesus avoided them. They thought Messiah would be attracted to them because of all their religion. They thought when Messiah comes, he's gonna, first thing he's going to do is go through our process of becoming a Pharisee and then maybe a leading member of the Sanhedrin. He'll, he'll come down and join forces with us. That's what, that's what religious people think. They think that God is all for them, that God's got pom-poms cheering them along. And, and Jesus so offended this elite group of religious people because he disassociated from them. He didn't have much to do with them. In fact, the, the interaction with, with Nicodemus is, is incredible that he spent that time with a Pharisee. And he did dine at one Pharisee's house. He did. It's not like he totally excluded them, but he certainly in no way came down and joined their club. They thought... Messiah, if he's Messiah, he'll be attracted to us. He'll join our club. He'll become a Pharisee. Everything will be aligned. We'll finally get what we've been waiting for. That's what they thought. But what they didn't understand was that Jesus didn't come for religious people who think they are well. That's not who he came for. You see, religious people would say, I... This, I it's unconscionable that somebody like Jesus would interact with the Samaritan woman. She lives with her boyfriend. She's had all these marriages. She's, she's a, a, a habitual adulteress, and she's this and she's that. And there's just no way he would have anything to do with her. She's not qualified to interact with him or, or receive his grace. And I'll tell you what, it is her life and her foolishness and her sin that qualifies her for grace. It's the fact that she was a dirtbag that qualifies her for grace. Because Jesus didn't come for the, those who were well. Those who point the finger. He came for despicable sinners like you and I. Rebels. Cosmic rebels. Who have so offended a holy God came for people like us. He revealed himself to a shacked up woman at a well. I think I made that baby cry. <laughs> Sorry, baby. The baby needs to hear it, especially at that age when they start going, Yay! head spins around, pea soup. Why didn't Jesus meet a Pharisee at the well? 
He came for sinners like the Samaritan woman. You see, that's really the first step that you realize you're a sinner. Next Sunday, Lord willing, we will look at her response, and it is just incredible. And I would encourage you to read ahead, listen to a sermon or two on it, and we'll talk about it next week, Lord willing. Closing. Last Sunday, we learned that we are all like the Samaritan woman in that we have all sinned, and we have all pursued meaning and satisfaction in something or someone other than God, right? We've all attempted to fill the God-shaped hole with anything and everything but God. We've sinned against Him greatly. We're just like her. I'm a male version of her. My question is this. Are we also like the Samaritan woman in her religion and or worship? You see, Samaritanism is still around today. It's just not called that, but it's still around. Any religion that promotes dual justification, salvation by faith plus good deeds, is Samaritanism. And that's pretty much all religions minus biblical Christianity. Sadly, I've met many believers who say, good deeds play a role in their salvation. This is a departure from biblical Christianity. This is a departure from the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our good deeds have nothing to do with our salvation or justification. We cannot earn these things through good deeds. We can only receive them through faith. Faith is the conduit by which they come to us. It's really important that we understand this because it could mean the difference between eternal life and eternal death. If we add anything to faith, if we add anything to Jesus, we have left the Scripture. This is super, super serious. Another question would be, are we checkbox Christians? Do we come to church because we want, to, we want God to love and forgive us? Well, if I just do this, this, and this, He'll, he'll love me, He'll forgive me, He'll accept me, he'll, he'll continue to bless me, He'll give me His favor. Do we pursue religious rituals in an effort to earn God's love, forgiveness, and favor? If this is true, we are wasting our time. God has already declared His love for us right on this symbol. When you see this, think of God's love and how much He loves you. Because it is upon one of these execution devices that He slaughtered His Son out of love for you. When you're tempted to try to earn His love, look to this and say, I can't. Jesus earned it for me. 
God has already declared His love for us at the cross, and He has already shown through Scripture how we receive and experience it. How? Through faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. End of story. End game. Remember, true Christianity is flipped. It is about receiving and then doing, not the other way around like all other religions. Lastly, what about our worship? Do we worship God in spirit and truth? God cannot be worshipped in any other way. Jesus made it so clear in that text. You cannot contest it. God only accepts true worship, and true worship occurs only when our hearts are set ablaze by minds that are informed by and filled with the knowledge of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That what? That He died for our sins, that He was buried to settle our account, that He rose from the grave three days later, victorious over sin, Satan, death, and hell. That's the gospel in a nutshell. True worship occurs when we understand that and are entertaining that work in our minds. Our minds are filled with that, and it produces from the heart impassioned love and gratitude that comes out in singing, living, lifting, whatever. It's the only way. Is that us? Is that us? Is that us? Is that us? Is that us, or are we checking boxes, thinking that somehow God's cool with us? Do we believe that our, our good deeds are playing a part in God's salvation that He has for us? I hope not. 